0: Kids, you can be dismissed to your class. Let me ask the rest of us to turn to 1 Kings chapter 1. 1 Kings chapter 1 this morning. Originally, I had planned to just continue our work in John's Gospel, but on Wednesday, I changed my mind and decided to preach a Father's Day sermon. And you may recall that I did not preach a Mother's Day sermon this year. However, I hope I'm not disappointing the mothers. Don't take it personally. Over the years, I've preached about three Mother's Day sermons for every one Father's Day sermon. All right. Besides, today's sermon is actually really for parents, not just fathers. And truth be told, both Father's Day and Mother's Day can be extremely painful especially for those whose adult children are not following the Lord. Today's sermon may be the most raw and challenging Father's Day sermon you've ever heard. But I hope in the end that it will offer real encouragement, especially if you're one of those fathers who has failed, and we've all failed. Here's a question for you. How many scriptural examples can you think of of good fathers? I had a church member say to me recently, it's not very encouraging when you go looking to the scripture for good examples of good fathers. How many can you come up with? Maybe there's a reason why I've preached very few Father's Day messages. Reading the Bible can be downright discouraging for parents, and frightening too. If you thought the Bible was a collection of biographies of great saints, well, tell me how successful were those saints with their own children? What about the first children of the first parents? One murdered his own brother? Murdered. His brother? How many good fathers were there before the flood? Has that question ever occurred to any of you? In Genesis 5, we read of a man named Lamech. He was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and his son feared the Lord. His name was Noah. And Noah was spared in the year of the flood. But just how good a father was Lamech? Lamech lived another 595 years after Noah was born and had other sons and daughters, plural, all of whom perished in the flood. Noah's siblings perished in the flood. Noah's nieces and nephews would have perished in the flood. How heartbreaking must that have been? And what kind of father was Noah? Well, we don't have a lot of data, but the little we know is not very encouraging. In Genesis chapter 9, we read of a strange episode of Noah's drunkenness, nakedness, and a curse on Canaan, the son of Ham, for Ham's inappropriate behavior. The passage is cryptic for sure, but it certainly does not suggest that Noah was a stellar father. How about Abraham? How would you describe the relationship between Abraham's children, Ishmael and Isaac? How about Lot? What sort of father offers his two virgin daughters to be violated by the wicked men of Sodom? Does Peter's comment in 2 Peter 2 and verse 7 surprise anyone? Peter wrote, and if he rescued righteous Lot. Righteous Lot? I didn't see that coming. He's a pretty despicable character. His own daughters got him drunk and conceived by him. How about Isaac? How would you describe the relationship between his children, Jacob and Esau? One ran away from home to preserve his own life. Was there favoritism in the family? Did Isaac prefer one child and Rebecca another? Did Isaac raise a deceiver? A son whom he couldn't trust when blinded by old age? How about Jacob? Was Jacob a model father? We read of some of his children this morning. Did he too have favorites? Didn't his own sons conspire to kidnap their own brother and sell him into slavery? Could Jacob trust his own sons to tell him the truth? When you read of Jacob's children, how many would you say they really, they really thrived spiritually? We have a whole chapter devoted to the folly of one of his sons, a man named Judah. And what sort of father was Judah. In Genesis 38, we read of Judah fathering three sons, probably out of wedlock, with a Canaanite woman whom he eventually married. When the first Ur came of age, Judah arranged a marriage with a woman named Tamar, but Ur was a wicked man and God killed him. Judah then arranged for his second son, Onan, to marry Tamar, but Onan acted in a sexually inappropriate way and God killed him too. Judah then promised his third son Tamar, uh, his third son to Tamar, but he lied. Tamar then played the harlot and seduced her father-in-law, becoming pregnant by him. When Judah sought to burn his daughter-in-law alive for her, for her immorality, she revealed the true father of the child in her womb and barely spared the child's life. Judah nearly murdered his own daughter-in-law and son And the whole affair is so sordid, you wonder, like, why is that even in my Bible? And then you realize the child in her womb was in the line to the Messiah. So how many other stories are there of failed fathers? We know very little of Moses' marriage, but the insight that we're given in Exodus chapter 4 suggests there was cultural strife between Zipporah and Moses concerning the rearing of their children. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, perverted the worship of Yahweh. God's fire fell from heaven and consumed the sons of the first high priest. Eli's sons are described as worthless men. They polluted the tabernacle sacrifices and fornicated with women as they came to worship at the tabernacle. So God raised up Samuel to rebuke Eli and his wicked sons. But what of Samuel's sons? In 1 Samuel 8, we read, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. And the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. But turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. The failure of Samuel's sons was one of the main factors that prompted Israel to call a king, King Saul. How about Samson? Samson, the judge of Israel, was especially chosen by God. 1 Samuel 13 is really a delightful narrative concerning how God answered the prayers of Samson's parents and allowed them to conceive after years of barrenness. An angel of God even made multiple appearances consecrating Samson as a Nazarene. And that chapter ends with the Spirit just really coming on Samson and beginning to work mightily through him. But Samson's parents were not particularly happy with his marital choices nor his run-ins with Philistine prostitutes. Well, how successful a father was King David. David's son Amnon violated his own sister Tamar. Then David's son Absalom murdered his brother Amnon. Then Absalom provoked a civil war and split David's kingdom in half. After the death of Absalom, another son, Adonijah, would make himself king. And we read his story here in 1 Kings chapter 1. And he goes out and he stages an elaborate ceremony and parade seeking to make himself king instead of Solomon, the rightful heir. Eventually, Solomon would have to execute his own brother, Adonijah, for his duplicity. So a lot of David's kids end up quite dead prematurely. And the narrator includes a little detail that gives us a very sad insight into David, into David's parenting style. It's right there in verse 6. Concerning Adonijah, the narrator writes, His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? Well, the narrator puts a little detail in there as a warning to us all. And the world says, go out and coddle the kids. Don't discipline the kids. Make life easy for them. Friends, that is totally naive. David may have thought that he was loving his son by refusing to confront him. But that didn't translate into any lasting respect for his father. Quite the opposite. In fact, David's son tries to wrest control the kingdom away from his father as an old man. When you don't confront your kids, believe me, they know better. They have guilty consciences just like you. They know they've sinned. Pretending that sin isn't real doesn't change the fact that they know it. Go ahead and tell your kids what they already know. They're sinners. Well, David was afraid to confront his son, and he reaped a whirlwind. And what about another of David's sons? How about Solomon? Solomon was a notoriously profligate man, history's most famous polygamist. If David's marital woes produced trouble, his son expanded that trouble exponentially. And skip ahead now to 1 Kings 14 and verse 21. And let's consider Solomon's son. Solomon's son and successor was a man named Rehoboam, and he was a total disaster. His heavy-handed rule brought about the defection of ten northern tribes who all plunged into permanent idolatry. Listen to how 1 Kings chapter 14, beginning with verse 21, describes Rehoboam's reign. Now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars in Asherim on every hill, under every green tree and there were also male cult prostitutes in the land they did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel this is this is a description of Solomon's sons reign this is the grandson of David And when you keep reading, you just wonder, why did God ever choose to make a covenant with David? I mean, his descendants are pretty wretched. Well, let's turn now to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18. We could go through several more kings, but the story is kind of sad. I've actually been reading through Kings with my children, and it's not very encouraging. There's a whole lot of wickedness that just sort of bleeds off of every page. We punctuate our reading from time to time with some Psalms to sort of, you know, encourage us a little bit. However, when we reach the account of good King Hezekiah's reign, it feels like an oasis in the desert. Hezekiah fears the Lord. Hezekiah consults with God's prophets, including Isaiah. Hezekiah comes along and he ruthlessly destroys the idolatry that has run all through the land. He tore down the high places. He destroys the Asherim. He destroyed Moses' bronze serpent. The people had turned into an idol. And look at what the text says about Hezekiah in verse 5. 2 Kings 18 and verse 5 he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. And notice this commendation. So that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, or among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And notice the result. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, whenever wherever he went out, he prospered. Friends, these are are just delightful words in a wilderness of sin and misery. Now God will miraculously protect Hezekiah from imminent destruction at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians came and they overran the northern tribes. But God protected Hezekiah. When Hezekiah became ill to the point of death, he prayed and God intervened and spared his life. Would you turn to 2 Kings 20 and verse 3 and let's notice his prayer. 2 Kings 20 and verse 3. Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart. Look at those two words. Whole heart. And I've done what is good in your sight, a whole heart to serve God. Well do you recall what David prayed for his son Solomon, when he transitioned the kingdom to Solomon? We looked at this passage a couple weeks ago in our 11:15 service. David prayed in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 19. Listen to these words, David's prayer, "Grant to Solomon my son, a whole heart." that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes. If that prayer wasn't fulfilled in Solomon, it was fulfilled in Hezekiah at long last. Here is a king who followed God with all of his heart, his whole heart. Now here's a question. Don't you suppose a man like Hezekiah would make for an excellent father? How about this question? Would you suppose that King Saul or King Hezekiah would have a greater son? Let's say that you work for a Christian adoption agency and you have to read the profiles of King Saul and King Hezekiah and you have to place a child with one or the other. Who are you going to place that child with? That's easy. Hezekiah. Let's say that you're choosing between Saul or Hezekiah as guardians for your kids. Whom do you choose? That's easy Hezekiah. But have you ever contrasted Saul's son, Jonathan, with Hezekiah's son, Manasseh? Actually, when you do that, it's really quite shocking. I will not read the account of Jonathan. I think you know the story of Jonathan and the character of Jonathan. But let's read about Hezekiah's son. Look down at Second Kings 20 and verse 21. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh's son reigned in his place. So what kind of king was Manasseh? What do you think? Good? Bad? I'm getting some thumbs down. All right, well, let's keep reading 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah's father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made Asherah, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering. And he burned his son as an offering. And used fortune telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he sent. He set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil, more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with the idols, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. Thorough destruction, that's what he's talking about. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight. And it provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Well, that is not a very encouraging passage to read would you have expected that from Hezekiah's son? I wouldn't. Maybe Saul's son, but Hezekiah's son? This is really discouraging. You're probably saying, no more Father's Day sermons, right? I get it. It's really difficult. I mean, I would have thought of all people, Hezekiah. That guy's going to get it right. But friends, we don't find very many good examples in Scripture. We just don't. In fact, there's more good examples in this room than there are in the whole of Scripture, frankly. But let's just talk about reality. This last week, I had to make two unexpected trips to Honda to get some repair work done on my car. Someone tried to break into my car, and they damaged a little lock cylinder so the key would no longer go in and open the door. I had to make one trip on Monday to get the problem diagnosed, to order the part, and I had to come back on Wednesday and get the thing installed. And you know how it is when you get really frustrated by life circumstances. You're just thinking, you know, maybe, maybe some good can come of this somehow. Well, when I was checking out for the first visit, I struck, struck up a conversation with a lady at the service desk. And she had a Bible sitting there on her desk. And uh, I thought, well, I wonder if she's a believer. So I pointed to the Bible... And I said to her doesn't doesn't the bible have something to say about the curse and the brokenness of our world and the frustration of our world and thieves breaking into our cars and trying to do damage just trying to make a conversation with her well she was indeed a relatively new believer and she launched into a long and detailed description of all of her problems and her husband's problems with their children One of them, she said, just joined a cult. Another has transgendered and mutilated her body. It was all very sordid and shocking and very discouraging. She wanted prayer for her children, and after just listening to her whole story, I understood why. Isn't that what you find all the way through Scripture? If you're looking for a pleasant little text from which to preach an easy Father's Day sermon, they're hard to come by. Again, Mother's Day and Father's Day can be very discouraging to parents. Many a Christian parent of adult children can feel like complete failures. Like, where did we go wrong? Nothing frightens me more than the possibility of one of my children just turning away from the Lord. Lady at Honda described her children as, quote, pagans destined for hell. That's what she said to me. My kids are pagans on their way to hell. Well, her statement provoked me to preach a Father's Day message. That's why I'm doing this today. I really I've been thinking about her statement all week long. But I thought this better not be a pleasant little Father's Day message with a perfect little fathers that produce these perfect little kids, you know, like whatever. All right. Now how about a Father's Day sermon that really deals with reality? So when I returned to Honda on Wednesday, I sat there in the reception area and I started writing out this sermon. And simultaneously in the back of my head, I'm thinking, okay, what am I going to say to this lady? I really want to say something to her. I really want to help her. Somehow I want to help this lady. I don't know what I'm going to say. I want to say something to help this lady. I don't know what to say. And as I was working on this sermon and thinking about that lady, I turned to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. Can you turn there? 2 Chronicles chapter 33. What do you say to a discouraged father? Or discouraged mother whose children haven't turned out so well? What do you say to discouraged parents everywhere who live in a fallen world and they see their children entangled by sin? They see children whose hearts have turned away from God. What do, you, what do you say to them? Well, I do want to end this morning with some hope. Did you know there is more to the story of Manasseh than we read in 2 Kings? After reading through the life of Manasseh, it's very difficult to imagine a more profligate life. I mean, the guy was really bad. It's hard to imagine two more diametrically opposite kings than Hezekiah and his own son Manasseh. Manasseh pursued every wickedness possible, but in the end, he found it all very empty. In 2 Chronicles 33, it tells us that Manasseh did indeed repent, but only after a long life of sin and God's judgment. Let's look first at verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Now that sounds like the end of the story. That's where you'd expect it to end. I mean, just put a, put a section breaker right there. Let's just get on to the next king. But there's more. Verse 12. And when he was in distress... He entreated the favor of Yahweh, the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. Did you see that coming? The Lord his God? Yahweh his God? He humbled himself before the God of his fathers? You mean like Hezekiah's God? Yes. Like David's God? Yes. Hezekiah's God. Keep reading. Verse 13, he prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Would you have guessed that? God rescued even Manasseh. And if God can rescue Manasseh, is there anyone that he cannot rescue? Is there any son or daughter who is just too far gone? The answer is no, absolutely not. Keep reading. Verse 14. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities in Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, And all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people sacrificed at high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the Acts of Manasseh, and his prayer to his God, and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel, and his prayer, and how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin and his faithlessness, and the sites on which he built high places and set up the asherim and the images before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers." So Manasseh slept with his fathers and they buried him in his house and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Well, the chronicler is quick to point out that the revival in Manasseh's day was incomplete. That's verse 17. And the fact is no reformation of the kingdom and no reformation of the church is ever complete. That, that's just reality in the fallen world in which we live. All right, there, there's, no, there's no perfect reformation. But, nevertheless, isn't this passage just really encouraging? Like, really, really encouraging? Manasseh embraced Hezekiah's God. He turned away and destroyed the idolatry. But again, let's deal with reality. Hezekiah never lived long enough to see his son's repentance and restoration. Hezekiah never saw this day. And the truth is, sometimes Christian parents go to their graves without ever seeing their children in a right relationship with God. That's reality. But no Christian parent ever needs to give up interceding with God on behalf of a child. Never, ever give up. If God can rescue Manasseh, he can rescue anyone. Don't ever assume your child is just too far gone. It's not true. When the time came for me to pay the bill at Honda, I deliberately waited till everyone had just sort of cleared away from the desk. I wanted a little bit of time just to talk some more with that lady. And I told that lady, well, look, I'm a pastor, and I'm working on a Father's Day sermon. And as I was sitting over there in the reception area, I read Second Chronicles 33. And I said to her, you really need to read this passage. You need to read about Hezekiah, you need to read about Manasseh, you and your husband. And I think this passage will really, really encourage you. And she got very excited about reading this passage. I also told her that her children might never come to Christ before she dies. But I said, never stop praying. And then she said the most interesting thing. She said, I can't remember the passage, but somewhere the Bible says there is rejoicing even among the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. She says, that's in the Bible somewhere, yeah? And then she said, God may never let me see my kids come to Christ while I'm alive. But often I think about going to heaven and getting to hear those angels rejoicing over my kids finally coming home to Christ. Like, I'm going to be in this, I'm going to hear that. I've never heard that before. I thought that was really intriguing. That, that's incredible faith. She's just going to keep on praying right through to her deathbed. That's what it takes. And she's convinced that on the other side, she's going to hear those angels rejoicing. And friends, I'm just really hard-pressed that God would impress upon a mother to pray that way in faith for her children if God did not intend at long last to call those prodigals home. There's real hope in all that. And by the way, where is that passage that she quoted? It's in Luke chapter 15. It's the reference that immediately precedes the parable of the prodigal son. She didn't realize she was quoting the passage that precedes the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son. As I thought about the parable of the prodigal son, the truth is God only had one perfect son, All of us are prodigals. We're all wretched sons. We're all prodigal sons called home by a loving Heavenly Father who just refused to let us go. So I can't say precisely why God chose not to give us more encouraging examples of good fathers in the Scripture. He just hasn't. Maybe we can ask Him one day. But here's what I can say. It was God who chose the term Father to describe Himself to a broken world. We didn't come up with that term. That was the term that God used to describe Himself. It was God who created us even though He knew we would rebel. It was God who created Adam and Eve even though He knew that His children would rebel against Him. And it's still God who calls Himself Father in a world full of prodigal sons. It is God to whom we must look as the one perfect father where all earthly fathers fail. And Joseph and I did not coordinate this morning. Right? We, didn't, we, we didn't talk at all, all right? But he had us recognize that fathers fail. So let me conclude by just saying a word to our children. All right, Your parents, children, teens are not perfect. Not even close. Read the whole Bible through and you will find no examples of perfect fathers, not even close. But I can tell you what your parents desire most for you. David was an imperfect parent. We all know that. In fact, you might say David was a disaster in many ways. But listen again to what he prayed for his own son Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 19. David said, Grant to Solomon my son a whole heart, That he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes. As an old man looking back over his life, here's what David desired most for his children a whole heart. That's what I want for Solomon, a whole heart. Now, Solomon's children pursued many, many other things. He was a very powerful king. He became a great builder. He was extraordinarily wealthy. He pursued his dreams in science and education. He built great works of art and architecture. But the book of Ecclesiastes that we looked at last fall tells us that he found none of those things ultimately satisfied him in the end. He found them all very discouraging. And friends, children, teens, your your parents actually know a whole lot about that. They know that the things that the world says you need most are not things that really satisfy. They're not going to make you happy in the end. Trust your parents on them. In the end, there's only one way that you're ever going to succeed in life. And that is, you've got to have a right relationship with the one true and perfect Father found in the Bible. That's it. That's how you're going to succeed. You're going to have a right relationship with the true Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what David understood. So what do your fathers really want from you? Well, look again at the words of 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 12. Are you still in 2 Chronicles 33? Okay. 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 12. Look again. Children, look at the words. Verse 12. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of Yahweh, the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. You're never going to get a perfect human father. But you do need to embrace the God of your father. Let his God become your God. Let his Savior, Jesus Christ, become your Savior. That's the only true path to success in life. So can we take a moment and bow our heads and just really pray for our children once more. In fact, I'm going to ask Brother Pettit if he would come. Do you mind, Dr. Pettit, come and- praying for our fathers and praying for our children. Many of you will hear Dr. Pettit preach this week, and I'm going to really, really encourage you to listen very carefully to what he has to say and allow the Lord to work in your heart by his spirit as Dr. Pettit preaches this week, each night. And uh, really, really encouraged by many of you who have signed up for camp and to hope that you'll let this week be a week of real spiritual growth a week of real challenge as you listen to Scripture. So can we all pray for Dr. Pettit as he ministers to our kids this week? And Dr. Pettit, would you come and pray for us, and then we'll have our closing hymn. Okay.
1: Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, our hearts have been touched this morning by the power and the truthfulness of your word We thank you, Lord, first and foremost, that you are a perfect father and you sent into this world a perfect son. We thank you, Lord, that we are in Christ as your perfect sons and daughters through faith in him. We thank you that you've given us, even this morning, the example of a man who sought you with his whole heart. And you were moved by his prayer. And we thank you, Lord, that you, you do hear the sincerity of our hearts. So we pray for our children. I pray for every young person in this church that they would all be saved, every one of them. That they would know Christ, that they would experience a new birth, a regeneration. I pray for them that you would protect them and keep them. Protect them from harm and from evil. Guard them, Lord. Guide them. For those who have gone astray, we pray that you would be merciful and bring them back. We thank you, Lord, that you are a good shepherd and you go after the sheep. And so we pray. We pray for our children that there would be works of grace in their heart, especially this week in camp. That the word would be quick and powerful. And that there would be great grace work going on in hearts where you put within them both a desire and the empowerment to do your will. Work in them, Lord, we pray, by your spirit. And that we pray, Lord, that you'll give us as a church a desire to bring glory to you through our families, through our marriages, through our children and our grandchildren, that they would all be saved, and that they will serve you and follow you. We thank you for the wonderful examples that this church has of parents who have sought to serve you and follow you. And so, Lord, thank you. Thank you for our pastor. Bless him and his family and his children uh, that they would walk before you in truth. We thank you that we live in New Testament days where we do have the Word of God at our fingertips and we do have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we thank you for the mercy of Jesus. Thank you for your mercy to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.